Hey, welcome everybody. This is Table Talk, your healthy theological radio addiction. And I'm your host, Pastor Brent Kuhlman, along with Pastors Adam Moline and Clint Poppy. It's good to be with you all. Um, I have a suggestion for you guys while Adam dinks around and does some uh, managing work. Since, since Adam's such a good manager of the station, Clint, we need a VIP room here at uh, the radio station. We need uh, donuts, not only with our coffee, but good donuts. The Greek yogurt's got to go, I'm telling you. It's if, there's, go. if there's no long, stinky cigars, there will be no VIP room for me. I'll I quick see. make a uh, run to Dunkin' Donuts. No, good donuts. Yeah, uh, whatever. Where would that be? I'm working on my figure. I'm a, I'm a growing boy. I've got to keep working on my figure. If I'm going to get to the nursing home in good shape, I've got to work hard at it. So They won't let you in? <laughs> you don't have uh, – I won't say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I was in New York, they'd, they'd ship me the – to the nursing home immediately, so they, I could spread just, it all the more. They'd ship you right out to the <laughs> semi out back. <laughs> <laughs> Governor Cuomo, where are you? Where are you? In any event, uh, we've been looking at a little bit of historical data, uh, reformational historical stuff. Um, I know it sounds strange to the ears to a lot of Christians in America these days because you know they're really not taught this subject very much at all, the Antichrist, uh, biblically speaking. And the Lutheran Reformation says that... Uh, and correctly so, that the papacy is the Antichrist. Now, what we were doing is is showing the historical data of, of when Luther finally comes to the conclusion that, yeah, the papacy really is the Antichrist. And as I said before in previous episodes, it was to his abject horror. that uh, Because he was, a, he was an obedient son of the church. You know, he was not, he didn't begin his uh, life as a monk with, with this uh, presupposition, I'm going to start a new church. That, that was never in his mind at all. Okay? But uh, in his studies and with things that happened to him, all of a sudden, my goodness, I think the papacy, yeah, yeah, the papacy really is. So let's back this conversation up a bit. I spoke uh, in our last episodes in 1518, Cardinal Cayetan is sent to meet with Dr. Luther from the Pope just simply to ask uh, or demand, if you will, that Luther will recant, you know, say that you've been wrong in everything that you've been teaching and just become an obedient son of the church again. But as, I'm, as I showed from this meeting with Cardinal Cayetan, this was a watershed moment for Dr. Luther and especially his view of the Roman papacy because Luther was, was beginning to realize that he was being required to denounce the gospel. And it's at this time, you know, 1517, 1518, we'll just simply use that, that framework at this time, it's at this time that he actually writes that uh, it's the gospel that f- has freed his conscience, and it's the gospel that th- that's what makes him a Christian. And if he's going to have to renounce the gospel to, be co- to, to remain a faithful son of the church and, and of the Bishop of Rome, then what in the world would this mean for him? And so he writes a letter to one of his uh, friends, Wenceslas Link. It's December 18th of 1518. And he asks at least, and again, this is by way of review, folks, uh, if you know if you know more information about this than I do, then let me know. But I think this is for the first time, as far as I can tell. This is December eighteenth, fifteen eighteen, where Luther, uh, with with uh, asked the question, with all the the weight that comes with it, can can the Pope really be? Can the papacy really be the Antichrist that Paul speaks about in Second Thessalonians two? Okay. Well, he just raises that question in that letter. Could it, could it be? Now, when we get to January of 1519, 
We're a month later. He's still willing to profess papal authority when he writes a letter to Pope Leo. Okay? But then in February of 1520, Dr. Luther's thinking on this topic comes to a boiling point, if you will. And this is where I wanted to do the, the, the repeats so that everybody understands this, why this becomes such a crisis for Dr. Luther. So just in the general time frame from 1517 on, Luther is being accused by his, his theological enemies that he is a Hussite with regard to his teaching on the church and the church's authority. And it's at this time then, in February of 1520, that for the first time in his life, Dr. Luther actually reads one of John Huss's writings called Concerning the Church. Now let's not forget, John Huss, 100 years prior, was burned at the stake at the Council of Constance. And one of the primary documents for his being burned at the stake was this document concerning the church. And Luther now reads it in 1520. And now he realizes he's mortified. And in what way? That he is a Hussite. Yes, we are all Hussites. Yeah, and so he says, so Staupitz and all of my Wittenberg friends. And then, and then he makes the remark. I just love this. He says, and so is St. Paul. <laughs> and so is St. Augustine. Hussites to the letter, Luther says. And I quote, okay. So then later on in February, February 14th in 1520, Dr. Luther writes this to Spalatin. He says, and I quote, I implore you just to look at the horrific black hole into which we are entering without a Bohemian leader or teacher. I am too dumbfounded to even know what to think, seeing such a terrifying judgment of God among men that the true gospel is considered worthy of being damned. Having been torched, this is a reference to Huss's burning at the stake at the Council of Constance, having been torched so blatantly in public for over a hundred years and that no one can admit it. It is the woe of the world, end quote. Now, my point in doing this with you again is this. What Dr. Luther suspected from his 1518 meeting with Cardinal Cayetan was absolutely true. The gospel now has been denounced as heresy by the Roman church. You following this? Any questions, guys? No, nope, nope. absolutely. All right, then let me, let me press on with this. So 10 days later in February of 1520, so this would take us to February 24th, 1520, Dr. Luther writes to Spalatin again. And I want to give you the exact words because this is very informative. I quote, this is Luther writing. I have in my hands from the printing house of Dominicus Schlettner, Lorenza Valla's refutation of the donation of Constantine published by Houghton. Now, I'll let my historical expert here to my right tell everybody <coughs> what was the uh, donation of Constantine. Yeah, the donation of Constantine was a forged document that um, in... Um, I want to say the late 400s, um, and I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, uh, the last Roman emperor before he was removed from power uh, by the barbarian hordes that had uh, conquered the area, he donated all the land of Rome, and even we say Rome there, we don't just mean the city Rome, we mean Rome, uh, that he gave all of that to the pope, 
to be his possession and to be his kingdom. And so essentially it's transferring the kingdom of the Roman Empire to the church, the office of the papacy specifically, so that uh, he can be its ruler. And of course, it's a forged document, comes out much later after that fact, and it was used by the popes to consolidate their power and to give them worldly power instead of just spiritual power. Yeah, that's that's the kicker. The last sentence you just said is this supposed donation to the church by the Emperor Constantine was... I'm transferring my temporal authority to you, the papacy, and the church. So then the papacy could say who can be king or emperor and who couldn't. Uh, who could be jailed and who couldn't. Temporal authority. Yeah. And it and this is used this, that way. I mean, for example, uh, on Christmas Day in the year 800, um, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, uh, is crowned the Holy Roman Emperor uh, by the Pope. Uh, in Rome, uh, and uh, and so this is the. I think there's a, is it Henry the Fifth too. I, I get my names wrong here from. That's France. okay. I put you on the spot. But that's uh, all right. He too had to stand outside the palace of, of the Canos- Pope Canossa Canossa yeah. uh, for days in the cold, kneeling down before the Pope finally opened the door and let him come in and gave him his crown. And so it, it is held over the heads of all these kings uh, going forward. But it was a forgery. It was. And so it's at the time of the, the Renaissance and the Reformation that it's discovered through historical research that this is a forged document. That is to say, so what the papacy was claiming to have temporal authority was a, a fraud, a forgery. So that's Luther's point. So again, I have in my hands, he says, from the printing house, Lorenzo Valla's refutation of the donation of Constantine, namely, it's a forgery. So everything the Pope and the papacy has been claiming as authority temporally is a fraud. Okay, let me go on. Luther says, good God, exclamation point. Y'all. <laughs> and then he goes on, he says, you would be amazed how in God's judgment, not only such impure, crass, and naked lies of such massive Roman darkness or Roman iniquity have lasted through the ages, but also how they have prevailed and have been handed down in canon law, one following after the other. And now here is, uh, this is not my emphasis, but it's in the original. There's emphasis now, okay? So it's in italics. Luther says, I am so overwhelmingly horrified in the very depths of my being that I can scarcely no longer doubt that the Pope is that very Antichrist, which as commonly known, the world has expected since it all fits how he lives, what he does, what he says, and what he proclaims. Now, this, so this is just historical stuff for everybody to realize how Luther came to this point. And I want to remind everybody that he comes to this not because the papacy or the Pope was uh, immoral. Were the Popes immoral? Of course they were. Of course they were. But that's not the main thing for Luther. It's the doctrine. And what's the doctrine? That the gospel now, the pure gospel, that, that, that sinners are justified before God for Christ's sake, by grace, through faith, that is now considered to be heresy, and you will be put to death like John Huss was. Okay. Now, so, uh, naming the Antichrist was nothing new. That's my point here in the medieval church. There were many people prior to Luther who said that the papacy was the Antichrist, but Luther's view moves beyond those that went before him. 
It's not just a certain pope that's the Antichrist now. Now it's the papacy itself. I'm going to make that distinction. This is, this is one of the points that Luther makes. It's not just a specific pope that's the Antichrist. It's the papacy itself. So the, the office and the structure of the papacy, which may or may not include an individual pope. Correct. That's correct. Because let's, let's use terms people understand. The institution. And it's because the institution, the office, uh, sees itself as on the same tier or level with God and the ability to say what is true and what is not. That's right. Places itself up there with God's word. That's why the office itself is the Antichrist. I mean, uh, and to be fair, all of us could be Antichrist if we think we can add or subtract from God's word uh, as Christ himself warns about at the close of Revelation. That's a great point. And I've made that point over and over again as a pastor speaking with other pastors and people in the church is that, yes, the papacy does fit the bill of the Antichrist in Second Thessalonians 2, but there's other ways to be Antichrist. Whenever you stand against Christ and his Good Friday death for sinners in some way, you're Antichrist as well. Oh, I hear the music. We'll come back. Hang on tight. So hold my hand, i walk with you, my dear. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. All right, welcome back to Table Talk, your healthy theological radio addiction. And we've been doing a historical survey of how Luther uh, begins to begins to, and then finally comes to the realization that uh, the Roman papacy is the Antichrist that Paul speaks of in 2 Thessalonians 2. So we've been doing this historical flyby. Maybe not even a flyby because I've been giving you some detailed information. Now, I know a lot of people don't like history. A lot of people don't like church history, but I find it extremely fascinating. In fact, that would be a great show to do, uh, to show the parallels. I'm just going to throw this out for fun. It's history. When I, I do a Bible study uh, once a month up at Zion Lutheran Church in Omaha, Nebraska, which is near Bennington. And uh, for a while, I had some gentlemen who, two young gentlemen, one was married, one was not married, but now the other one's married now. But they always used to come to this Bible class. They were, one of them was a former Missouri Senate Lutheran, actually attended Concordia and Seward. But both these gentlemen had, uh, they, were no, they were not Lutheran, they were non-denom Christian men. And what's interesting in talking to them, and what they said is the essence of Christianity for them, it was very interesting that they, they believed the medieval church's false teaching of justification. Namely that, you know, Jesus died and Jesus paid for sins. They would, of course, say that. But so would the medieval church. But when push came to shove, for these men, the essence of salvation depended on what I did. And usually it was described as my decision or something that I, you know, did in my life. I quit smoking. Now, they didn't say that, but do you understand the point? And it was really no different than, uh, than what Gabriel Beale or what Occam taught in the medieval church is that uh, you, can, you can work on, you, you have a, contribution to play when it comes to salvation. And it's very interesting, the parallels here. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. Let me try and illustrate this point this way. Is that most non-denominational Christians do not kneel when they come to church. They don't genuflect. They don't make the sign of the cross. They don't bow their heads at the name of Jesus or the name of the triune God. Okay, 
But when it comes to theology, when it comes to salvation, they're in the same bed with the, with the Pelagians and the semi-Pelagians of the medieval church that the Reformation said, enough, enough. That's not what the scriptures teach. I find that very, uh, very interesting. Well, when now, uh, Pastor, when you say Pelagians and semi-Pelagians, you need to expound on that. That's, that's kind of church code talk. Uh, what, do you, what do you mean by that? I think many of our hearers might be, might be confused or left in the dark yeah, by thanks. those terms. Thanks. I, I take for granted that everybody knows these things, so I have to thank you for asking that question. So Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism is this simply this. Either you, by the f- exercise of your free will, save yourself. In other words, here's how it usually goes. You are not saved until you make Jesus the Lord and master of your life. You need to make the decision. So when Billy Graham... His magazine, still to this day, is is called Decision Magazine. Used to have a radio show. I don't know if they still have, but it's Decision. Namely, salvation depends on your decision. That's Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. Semi-meaning, well, we're we're not going to deny God's grace in this, but but still, you have a part to play. That's semi-Pelagianism. And uh, Franklin Graham has commercials everywhere yep, on yep. TV right now right. as we speak. On Fox all where, the time. Where he does a beautiful job of presenting the gospel. And then he says, all you have to do is ask him. So, yes. All you have to do is pray. Yeah. So God, God is just sitting up in heaven, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for people to make a decision to get saved. And brothers and sisters, if, you, if, you, if you're not offended by that, you should be because the Bible doesn't teach that. Just because the apostle says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, that doesn't mean you can do that on your own. Let's not forget that conversion, F-A-I-T-H, is a gift and it is a total miracle wrought by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So when Jesus preaches, repent and believe the good news, the words that he speaks does the repenting. The words that he speaks does the faithing. I don't do it on my own at all. Franklin Graham makes the the medieval Roman Catholic mistake. See, this is my point. I'm glad you raised this. Franklin Graham is a medieval Roman Catholic Christian, even though he doesn't make the sign of the cross, doesn't genuflect, doesn't bow his head. Or wear a clerical collar. Exactly. But theologically, he he is a medievalist. Namely, that yes, of course, Jesus did his part, but now you have to do your part. And your part becomes the most essential thing in salvation. In fact, he goes beyond the medieval Roman Catholic theologians. I don't think they would, except maybe a few, Gabriel Beale and Occam and a few others. But those guys, they took a lot of heat in the medieval church for saying that just rank, un- ungraced free will is what saves you. They would, they would say, yes, free will starts it along, and then as the free will exercises its will, then God graces it, you see. So in the medieval church, you had the argument, does grace get the ball rolling, or does grace come along later? Billy Graham and Franklin are worse than the medieval theologians, in my opinion, because they are just blatant, blatant Pelagians in the sense of you are, you are in the driver's seat of salvation. And this is why church history is so fascinating for me. So now connect the dots because you brought up this Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and I, I took you off on this explanatory rabbit hole here. Connect us back to what does this have to do with Luther and Huss and uh, the papacy as the Antichrist? It's the gospel itself. What is the gospel? Is the gospel, namely, that Jesus 
in his Good Friday death and Easter Sunday resurrection, is that what saves you totally and completely or not? And Luther was being told, no. No. You cannot teach that faith alone in Jesus Christ is what saves you. That's, that was condemned as heresy by the papacy. John Huss at the Council of Constance was burned at the stake for teaching such things and saying that the church has no authority to say otherwise. So that to me, that <coughs> raises the question, why? Was there a theological argument against Good Friday and Easter Sunday alone? Or was this a matter of institutional power and control or a combination of both? It's probably a combination of both. But all of this comes to a climax at the Lutheran Reformation. I mean, there's, religion is big business. So the, it's, a, it's a both. Uh, I always joke with my elders that if Trinity Murdoch wants to cut me off from salary because, you know, they don't like me all of a sudden, they say, well, we're just going to starve you out. We're not going to pay anymore. I've told them jokingly, wink, wink, tongue in cheek, then I'll just write prophecy books and I'll be a billionaire and you're stuck with me. Because <laughs> religion's big business. And so at the time of the Reformation, religion was big business. So the theology, they took theology seriously, but at the same time, they, it was big business as well. That was another reason why. In any event. I want to get back to uh, what I was talking about, the historical flyby, if, if you will. So I said, um, by the time you get to February of 1520, Luther says, all right, he is. The papacy is the Antichrist. And I said that there's the distinction, not just the, a pope individually, but the papacy itself. Okay? Namely, you can have a pope, like, for example, a modern-day pope, like, uh, uh, let's see, what was his name before he became, before he was Benedict, he was Cardinal... Uh, Ratzinger. Yeah, Ratzinger. Ratzinger, he could come very close to teaching salvation by faith alone. He could come very close, but he couldn't go the complete way because the papacy, the institution says you can't do that. There's no way. You go that way, then you're out. Then you're condemned by the church. And what do I mean? The Council of Trent, which followed the Reformation, said that any, if anyone teaches that you are saved by faith alone, let him be anathema. Let him be damned forever in hell. So on the one hand, uh, Ratzinger could come very close to teaching the biblical doctrine about salvation by faith alone, but he couldn't go the whole way, okay? And so that's because the papacy, the whole institution said you can't do that. And that's the point I'm trying to make here. Is that helpful? Yes, yes, very much. So, you know, you've been, you've been making this distinction between the papacy or the papacy being the Antichrist not just an individual pope. What's the big deal? Why is that significant? Is that just a word play, no. word game thing, or does it go something? Is it deeper? It, it it goes back to what I tried to say earlier, and I'm going to try. I'm going to say it again for emphasis. Is that go back to get know your church history? So the so the the, the council of Trent anathemizes, damns people who teach that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ, and that's now institutional. That's official Roman Catholic church teaching. So no matter who's pope, they have to, te they have to teach this. Even if a pope individually says, well, I'm not, I'm not totally on with that. I'm more Lutheran than I'm Roman Catholic. But still the Roman Catholic institution says, this is, okay? That's my point. And I hope that's helpful. Did, do I need to add to that or nuance it a little bit? No, I think that's exact. I mean, that's one aspect of it. Yeah, I think that's important. So... 
Well, I, I know I only have just a few minutes left before we have to say goodbye. So let's let's try and finish this thing with Luther and the Antichrist, okay? And now, so 1520, when Luther writes the Babylonian captivity of the church, the gloves come off. So as far as Luther is concerned, when he writes the Babylonian captivity, he would say that the papacy is not even a Christian institution. Instead, it's a tyrant that has enslaved the church with its own, and this is critical, with its own man-made laws, its own man-made regulations, and especially because it has the papacy has declared the gospel a heresy 100 years prior at the Council of Constance with the burning of John Huss. So when Luther treats penance, the sacrament of penance, that's confession and absolution, private confession and absolution, when he talks about that in the Babylonian captivity, he correctly writes that the papacy has completely undermined the connection between, and this goes back to where we first started in episodes a few weeks ago, the papacy then has now completely undermined the divine promise and faith. I quote, Luther says, The promise of penance has been transformed into the most oppressive despotism, being used to establish a sovereignty which is more than merely temporal. Not content with these things, Dr. Luther says, and now he, he emphasizes, this Babylon of ours, has so completely extinguished faith that it insolently denies its necessity in this sacrament, namely penance. Indeed, with the wickedness of Antichrist, it brands as heresy for anyone to assert that faith is necessary. End quote. And finally then, in addition to the pastor being able to speak forgiveness or absolution, are you listening? In addition to the pastor being able to speak this, because he, he pushed this prior, remember, in our prior talks, Dr. Luther in the Babylonian captivity advocates private confession even to another Christian from whom we receive the word of comfort as if spoken by dun, da, da, God. And Luther says, and if we accept this in faith, we find peace in the mercy of God speaking to us through our brother, end quote. And then Luther pushes Matthew 18 and says that the promise is given to all Christians and not just to the priesthood, namely the ordained clergy. And I quote, he says, it is not necessary to tell, namely your confession, to the church that is as these babblers interpret it, namely Rome, to the prelate or the priest. On this matter, Luther says, we have further authority from Christ, that's Matthew 18, where he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose, etc., for this is said, listen carefully, Luther says here, for this is said to each and every Christian. For Christ has given to every one of his believers the power to absolve even open sins. So is, is Luther extolling faith in Christ and his word in opposition to faith in the institution? Yeah, is that what we're talking yes, about Yes, and here? the institution that, the, that then denies that faith is the most important thing. Yeah. So Luther pushes this for all it's worth. Well, stay Lutheran, my friends. We'll talk again. <laughs>